Hey, bookworms, this is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. Today's episode features a chat with Catherine Howe. We're going to be talking about her book, A True Account, Hannah Mastery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. That book is available on November 21st. Um, so I think it should be out now if you're listening to this. Um, this was such a cool conversation with Catherine. I really enjoyed learning about um, her kind of dorky obsession with pirates. And, uh, you know, I learned a few fascinating things like that she shared while she was researching and just kind of her, you know, little personal expertise on the subject matter. Um, and then, you know, some other cool stuff about her process of writing this book and, and the two characters that it focuses on. Um, but either way, I'll let you guys get to it. Here is Catherine Howe. All right. So today we've got Catherine Howe. We're talking about um, her book, A True Account, Hannah Mastery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. That comes out on November 21st. Uh, Catherine, thank you for joining us today. Um, this story was so cool, so fun. Um, you know, a little bit of twists here and there. And I, you had me engaged and um, I feel like, you know, anybody can get into a story about pirates, you know, so uh, <laughs> I'm excited to get into it today. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me and thank you for reading it and taking the time to read it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I just finished it. I finished it today. And um, cause I wanted to make sure I had like, you know, it wouldn't no no surprises for me in my questioning. So like, okay. I wanted to make sure I know how it ends. We'll, okay. we'll be spoiler free for sure. You know, but okay, yeah, okay. I fresh in my brain. It was really enjoyable, really engaging. And, um, you know, it's got a little, I love, I just like, I kind of love how you went with like how you presented the story, how you told the story it was very, very cool. Thank um, you. but yeah. So to start off, can you give like a summary of the book so that listeners can follow mm -hmm. along? Well, first, yeah, I love, thank you for saying the whole title. Like the, I think technically the short <laughs> title is a true account, but it is a true account. Hannah Missouri's sojourn amongst the pirates written by herself, which even for someone who likes to have really long titles is really a record breaker for me. <laughs> um, and the reason it has such a long title is because the action in the book starts in Boston in 1726. And so back in the 18th century, book titles were these really long, like, like they just went on and on and on for like an entire page. And so I was trying to reference back the 18th century because the story is set in 1726. And Hannah is a girl who's been bound out to service in a tavern in Boston, a real tavern that really exists or existed. And she uh, is present at the hanging of William Fly, which is a real thing that happened. Um, William Fly was a guy who was, who, who turned pirate um, because of quote unquote hard usage. So essentially he led a mutiny and then they rechristened the ship that they were on um, the, the fame's revenge. And then they went pirating off Cape Hatteras in, in the Carolinas. And William Fly was captured almost immediately. It was not that unusual for pirates at the very end of the golden age of piracy um, to be captured pretty quickly. And he was brought to trial in Boston. And the trial was presided over by Cotton Mather, who was uh, the same guy who presided over the Salem witch trials. And so my character, Hannah, who's a fictional person, is present at the trial of William Fly and then gets caught up in some intrigue um, around the trial for piracy and ends up having to flee for her life. And then quickly she discovers that she has not fled. She's actually kind of caught up in, in piracy herself. And so it's a, it's a kind of an adventure story, but it's a bit of an unconventional adventure story. And I've been describing it as like Gone Girl meets Treasure Island a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it is fun because, yeah, it definitely has some adventure, but then it's kind of like, um, it's it's told, you kind of switch back and forth between time periods where... Um, yeah. 
you know, where it, this is Hannah's story, but then you introduce these characters who are discussing and, and trying to investigate yeah. her story and figure it out and seeing what's what. Um, so it's kind of like you, you, you have multiple points of view that like for the readers are, are learning things from. And, yeah. you know, cause you're kind of like, I wanted to know, I wanted to be like, Hannah, is she going to make it? And then I wanted to be like, Miriam, is she going to figure it out? Like, come on, I was rooting <laughs> yeah. for everyone. Like, yeah. Well, thanks. Well, there's a little, yeah, there's a tight, it's a little bit of a twist, but I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that we, when we start the story, we're reading, we're reading Hannah's story and you're kind of caught up with Hannah's story. And after a chapter or two, there's kind of an abrupt switch where you realize, oh, wait, you're not inside Hannah's story. You've actually been reading Hannah's story over someone's shoulder. Mm -hmm. And the shoulder that you've been reading over belongs to Marion Beresford, who is a professor at Radcliffe in 1930. And she has some complexities in her life as well. And um, But she, she has encountered, she's found this true account that Hannah has purportedly written. And there's a mystery at the center of the true account that Marion then sets out to solve. And of course, because it's a pirate story, because it's partly inspired by Treasure Island, there's there's treasure involved, naturally. Um, and so, but it is in some respects a story that is both on the one hand, like a classic pirate story, but it's also playing a little bit with some of the tropes of a classic pirate story. So it's, it's very much about women uh, and it's very much about women who, you know, what kinds of sacrifices they make or the ways that they have to mold their, themselves or their sense of selves in order to fit or find power within their own moment in time. And so um, so it turns out that Marion ends up having more in common maybe with Hannah than she would have thought or would have realized while she's trying to solve the mystery of what happened to her. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like that where there are some parallels where mm-hmm. she, you know, because obviously Hannah is smart because because like, you know, it was like the, the characters kind of reflect on this too, where it's like, she's uneducated, but she's like right. clever, right? Like she yeah. figures it out. She can be covert. She can kind of like mm-hmm. sense, she listens to her gut. She can sense danger. And she's mm-hmm. like the fact that, you know, she, I don't know if this is a spoiler either, but she stows away as like a cabin boy. Right. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. that that's so like remarkable. I think I only thought of that because of the in- entertainment I watch <laughs> or read, yeah. but well, I, there- you know, like how, how clever is that to like try to slay low, stay out of trouble yeah. and not, you know, just, just to kind of like blend in. Right. Well, you know, well, you know, it's funny. And I didn't even think about it until literally just this second when you were talking about it, that Hannah and Marion are, Hannah is uneducated. I mean, in the course of the story, she's, she's illiterate. She, Mm -hmm. you know, she, she, she makes like biblical references because she's growing up in this like post Puritan moment, but she doesn't, she doesn't have any schooling at all. Whereas Marion is the opposite. Mm -hmm. She is overeducated. And in some regards, Hannah has more social intelligence. She is better able to read situations. She's better able to be a chameleon in situations. Whereas Marion, despite being very book smart, doesn't have a lot of the social ability to navigate the same way that Hannah does. And it's funny because like, I literally didn't think about the fact that there are these kind of polar opposites until you just mentioned that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Cause she is like, yeah, Marion reminds me of um, just someone who's just like uber, like focused on her studies. She's just very Mm -hmm. like, you know, all about the academia life Mm -hmm. Um, and someone who she doesn't really give much thought into um 
you know, uh, like social interactions, other people's like motivations, like she kind of, she has some frames of reference, like in terms of, you know, like her father, for instance, but he was, she Mm -hmm. kind of followed in his footsteps, right? A little bit, like she's followed the trajectory of education and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she, she just like stayed on track, you know, and so, yeah. She also has a lot of biases. I mean, Marion, you know, so Marion is a professor in, in at Radcliffe in 1930. And one of the main characters that she interacts with is an undergraduate named Kay Lonergan, who is like Irish American kind of middle class girl from New Jersey. And Marion brings all these assumptions to bear on what kind of person she expects Kay to be and what mm-hmm. kind of things she expects Kay to do. And in a funny way, Marion is... We, we see that Marion is kind of blinded by some of her own assumptions and preoccupations. And um, in this, in, in just as Hannah is able to throw aside a lot of her assumptions and preoccupations. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way, I guess it's like this. It. Yeah. I guess it's like also the sense of in their, in their particular situations they're you know, I don't, I wonder how Marion would have responded to Hannah's situation and vice versa. Right. Like, yeah. Hannah, you know, she had the skills that she needed to have in order to survive. Like it was about mm-hmm. survival. Whereas Marion, she's kind of, you know, she has the skills to do the research and to figure mm-hmm. out, to dive a little deeper and to use her connections. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think she'd do well in Hannah's situation. Well, she wouldn't. And it's kind of funny because another thing that Hannah and Marion have in common is that each of them have kind of a fluid or evolving relationship with their own gender presentation mm-hmm. to some degree like Hannah disgu- disguises herself as a cabin boy in order to escape and she's living in a moment in time when gendered presentation is so very rigid that actually you know if you look at someone and they're in you know the outfit of of yeah. a particular gender they you it wasn't common to question what you were yeah. seeing you yeah. know and um and that's actually that's that part of Hannah's story is based on the historical record because two of the most famous pirates uh, of the golden age were Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And both of them uh, ended up disguising themselves as men in order to go pirating. And you wouldn't think that that would be something that a woman could get away with, except that gendered conventions of dress were so rigid and mm-hmm. high bound in the 18th century that it, it was, it was possible. And Marion, um, as we come to learn is, is a queer woman who has a sort of, sort of variable gendered presentation and that's one of the things that we end up exploring in the course of her story. And so it's it's interesting to me to hear you draw the con- the contrast between the two of them. You know that that on the surface they would seem to have so many things in common, and yet I think you're right. I think if Marion had caught herself or found herself in Hannah's situation, I don't know that she would have been able to respond as as flexibly um, mm-hmm. as Hannah was. Like yeah, like thinking quick on her feet, and yeah. you know having to make a decision that ends up, you know, helping her, like saving her life for at least, you know, in that, in that particular event, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, and I'm, I don't know, like I kind of, I just like sympathize with both of them, but I think I'm like, I relate maybe to Marion a little bit more, but that just also mm-hmm. might be because of the, <laughs> the time <laughs> and the place that yeah. I w- grew up, you know, yeah. like, I don't know if I would have, it depends. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to pass it off as a stable boy. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that. I was like, no, I was like, I'm with you, Mary. And I get it. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're going through it a little bit, you know, <laughs> that you're having oh. a hard time. Oh, um, so you have a good amount of uh, published works. Um, mm-hmm. 
So how did how did how did this experience differ from you know your previous uh, book titles that you've released? Did you approach it the same? You know, were there any big lessons learned? Things like that. Yeah. Well, my yeah, I've been. It's weird to discover myself like a mid-career novelist. Like I never <laughs> really thought that that would be something that would be possible. Um, my first book came out in two thousand nine, and it was called The Physics Book of Deliverance Dane. And it came about because I was in graduate school studying American studies. And I thought to myself, I was living in New England. I was living one town over from Salem. And I was living in this house that had been built in 1705. And one day it occurred to me that, um, and I was someone who studied visual and material culture. So I was interested in stuff. I was interested in culture and in objects and the ways that objects can tell stories. And it somehow occurred to me that someone's foot had been on the floor of my office and that foot had been present at the Salem witch trials because people traveled from all over the countryside to go look at the trials and something about that proximity or that tactile quality really blew my mind. And the story in physic book is also a a dual timeline story. And it's also about like this, in this case, it's a graduate student and she discovers that one of the Salem witches was the real thing, but she was the real thing, the way the colonists believed, which is to be not the kind of pointy hat fantasy kind of way. Mm. Because at the time, it seemed to me that um, I felt like all fiction about witchcraft was either was was on one end of the extreme or the other. Either it was mm. really cute and imaginative, like Harry Potter, or it treated everyone who lived in the past as idiots, like the Crucible. <laughs> and there was nothing in between that actually took the Puritan worldview seriously. There's nothing mm. that, that looked at the fact that like living in the early modern period... These were smart, thoughtful, reflective people who just occupied a radically different worldview mm-hmm. or religious perspective or whatever than, than, than the one that we occupy today, which is what got me really interested in thinking about the ways that historical fiction is able to kind of excavate these perspectives that, that we're really no longer in touch with. And so I've noticed over the course of my career that it is very common for me in fiction to have two timelines in which someone in the present is kind of explaining what's happening in the past. Like that's definitely a structure that, that I feel comfortable in and that I've used in almost every work of fiction that I've done, um, including my weirdest book, which is my, my ghost story, the appearance of Annie Van Cinderen, which is a ghost story that never uses the word ghost, um, <laughs> which is kind of, that was a, that was a fun one that was read by about 25 people. But um so the way that, I mean, one thing that was fun about this one was um, with a true account, it was an opportunity to write Hannah's story like a text, you know, to really, so in Hannah's part of the story, we're in first person and we're very much inside Hannah's experience. But then when we dip back into Marion's part of the story, Marion's job is to figure out whether or not Hannah's account is accurate, whether or not it is true. And so in some ways, this book is a fun way for me as an author to uh, kind of wrestle a bit with the nature of truth and authorial responsibility. You know, it's about, Mm. it's about, uh, can something be emotionally true while being factually false, which of course all fiction is Mm -hmm. factually false. Um, And so as I guess, as someone who's been telling stories, historical fiction stories for a while now, um, that was a different approach for me, which I really enjoyed. Like it, it, there is, there's kind of a meta thread that goes through it. That is a reflection on, 
you know, how trustworthy we find these narratives and what they can tell us about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, and like, how do you navigate that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you with that meta, that meta part of it? Like, how Mm -hmm. deep do you go there? Because there's, yeah, there's layers Mm -hmm. to it. And there's just so many, there's so many things to consider when you're, when you're playing around with that. Um, What kind of draws you to that, to the genre then to like historical fiction? And, and um, is it, you know, because I find that a lot of, a lot of authors, when I, when they stick to the, they have a genre that they like, they stick with Mm -hmm. it it's because they grew up like loving it. So was it similar for you? Like kind of what draws you to that? What makes you kind of stick with that? That's a good question. I mean, I've also, over the last few years, I've also written some nonfiction. So I've been the co-author okay. for Anderson Cooper's two books, um, Vanderbilt, yes. Yes, uh, The I Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, and then Aster, which just came out in September and is still is, you know, newly available. Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. And one thing that was fun about doing those projects was, um, you know, typically when I'm working on fiction, I get interested in a moment in time, which is like a tr- usually a transitional moment in time. And I study everything that I can try to understand about it. So for a true account, um, I'm looking at the 1720s, which is kind of the moment when the early modern is becoming the modern, like there's mm. a real sea change in, in like the spread of the scientific method. There's a change in religious belief. There's a change in economics. Like life gets just a little bit easier for regular people in British colonies. You know, I write, I'm an Americanist. So I write everything set in, in America or what later becomes America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting if I, if my order of operations in fiction is usually to start with a period of time, then populate it with someone who I think authentically belongs in that period of time and then see what they do. I mm-hmm. usually come to plot last with the Astor and Vanderbilt projects. I had to work in the opposite direction because mm. we, you, you start from knowing what happened and then you have to understand the time yeah. and you have to understand the people and you see the choices that they made. And from the choices you have to, if you can try to extrapolate what can be argued about what kind of person they were. Um, and so that was a fun that was a fun challenge um, to yeah. to kind of change the approach that way. I see. Yeah. Cause I did hear about um, both of those books and I thought, I think it was funny cause I was like, you know, looking on your website to check, check everything out to, you know, be- mm-hmm. get ready to talk to you. And I was like, Oh <laughs> shit, she did work with Anderson Cooper. <laughs> I, I was like, no, that's so and he's cool. lovely. And he's absolutely lovely. And wonderful. I was going to say, I, he's I, as you nice know, as you think, but not yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I think I think there was one of um, I don't know. I think I was listening to like a radio sh- morning show where they were like, you know, there was like a survey or, or who among like media reporters and mm-hmm. um who like or anchor you know anchors whatever mm-hmm. who like who seems the most trustworthy and Anderson Cooper was up there and I would have yeah. to say I agree like you kind reason. of trust what With he's saying and yeah he's yeah. just authentic and yes. um. Yes, you know, and he's, he's very measured and and, yeah. and and willing to ask really hard questions. And honestly, that was true about I, I have to give him a lot of credit. And I've said this in other contexts too, but like, you know, he Vanderbilt was a, is a story about his own family. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very hard to have mm. a measured perspective on your own family. I couldn't have oh, a yeah. measured perspective on my own family. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who regularly mines my own family for like ideas <laughs> for historical fiction. Yeah. And so, um, 
you know, and but he in no way wanted it to just be this kind of celebration of of how awesome the Vanderbilts were. He was coming at it from a very measured and critical perspective. And it was, mm-hmm. and as a result, I, I think it's a really powerful and interesting book. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that it's so effective. Yeah, yeah. I've been interested in um adding that to like well my audiobook list. Cause sometimes yeah. it's like you never know, like and, 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 and does he narrate it himself or who does? He did the reading for both Astor and Vanderbilt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, you know, if he can deliver and engage like with his voice, I think that would definitely help for uh, the audio version of it for sure. sure. Um, oh, that's so fun. No, I'm glad that he's just, you know, as, as wonderful and kind and, and intelligent as he, he's, he appears mm-hmm. because, yeah, and just like, great. you know, yeah, he, you know, and he could look at his family with like a critical lens, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's so important, especially for someone in that line of work. And as so with a mm-hmm. project like that, for sure. Definitely. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Oh, that's so, that's so fascinating. Okay. So you kind of talked, touched on this a little bit. Um, what kind of like research was involved? Did you kind of approach it similar? Um, you know, were there, was there anything fascinating or surprising that you learned? Oh yeah. Well, so I, I spent so much time. I've been, I've been obsessed with pirates for a while, which is maybe, <laughs> maybe not all that surprising, but there are a couple of reasons why that is. One is that I have only one hobby. I am like a total workaholic and also a parent. And so there's a lot of time that goes mm-hmm. into that. My one and only hobby is that I'm a sailor um, <laughs> and I sail a fair amount. And so like many sailors, I'm very interested in, you know, stories about maritime stuff and have read maritime stories and things. And so I've been thinking about pirates for a while. And I did so much research for a true account that I actually have a book coming from Penguin Classics called The Penguin Book of Pirates, which is coming (laughs) on February the 6th and is now available for pre-order. And what that is, is essentially an edited volume of primary sources in which I've gone through and done a little like introductory paragraph. And then I've done an annotation where I kind of explain like why this is such an interesting thing to read. And it, it has some stories in it about pirates you've heard of like Blackbeard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for example, or Anne, Bonnie and Mary Reed. They're both there. They're amazing. And also probably some pirates that you maybe haven't heard of or, or that you've only glancingly come across. So like um, if you watched or know about the series, Our Flag Means Death. Yes, I was just going to ask you about yeah, that. <laughs> Stevie Bonnet. Stevie Bonnet is in the book. He was a real person. He's um, fascinating uh, <laughs> on many, in many respects. He's very strange because he's like most guys who ended up turning to piracy did it out of a sense of desperation. You know, sure, they were yeah. driven to it by poverty or they were driven to it by mutiny or they were driven to it by one way or the other because piracy was punishable by death. Mm-hmm. Whereas Stevie Bonnet uh, was this wealthy guy. He, w- he was a wealthy slave-owning plantation owner. You know, he's an enslaver. He, was, he had all this money. He was living in, I, I want to say, Barbados. But he decided he wanted to be a pirate. This guy had no maritime experience <laughs> whatsoever. He did not know thing one about how to sail a boat. But he gets his own money together. He gets the boat. He hires the guys. He gets all the stuff. And he, like puts on an awesome outfit and he goes pirating and he ends up getting like caught up with Blackbeard and all this stuff. And of course he ends up getting caught and he ends up being put to death. And it's just like, like the, like it is unimaginable that any rational person would yeah. make the choice 
like so few people in the 18th century had any choice about what they did to support themselves. Right. Katie Bonnet was that rare man who actually had choice and he made this choice. Right. And yeah, it's, um, like, you know, there's a positive theory in Penguin Book of Pirates, what may have informed that choice. Um, but it's, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of really astonishing stories around the golden age of piracy. So like William Fly, for example, real guy mm-hmm. who kicks off Hannah Messery's story in a true account. He ends up, he is convicted along with a couple of other guys, and then he is hanged publicly. So hanging at this time was was a spectacle, like we all know mm-hmm. this from the Salem Witch Trials. It was a spectacle was done in front of everyone. And a um a very prominent historian of piracy, Marcus Redeker, who I admire very much, has argued persuasively that piracy operated on like two threads of terror. Like pirates would be effective at raiding shipping because of the terror that they struck in people's hearts. But then governments would try to dissuade people from piracy by using methods of terror. So one of the ways that this unfolded was William Fly, after he was hanged, like being publicly hanged is pretty gruesome to begin with. Then they gibbeted him. And gibbeting is when they take a hanged person's body and they publicly display it and hang it up in chains and leave it to rot. Mm -hmm. So William Fly's body was gibbeted in chains on a rock called Nix's Mate in Boston Harbor. I left there just like as a warning for mariners for Mm -hmm. what would happen if you decided to, to, to turn to piracy. And so one of the first things that happens when Hannah has like stowed away on this ship, she thinks she's on a fruit packet bound for the Azores and the ship um, changes their course on their way out of Boston Harbor to go past Nix's mate. And they all take their hats off in, uh, you know, as they pass the body of William Fly. And over the course of the story, William, like the horror of William Fly's face kind of haunts Hannah. Not, not Mm -hmm. literally. It's not like a ghost story, but, but she, she can't get, the image of him out of her mind um, over the course of the ensuing action that she takes part in. And, and so part of what we were, I was trying to explore with that was, you know, what it, what it feels like to be terrorized mm-hmm. in that way. So, yeah, there are a number of things that I, that I learned in the course of researching a true account. Um, some of them are kind of unpleasant, um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I've, I've maintained that one of the reasons that we're so romantic about pirates is because we actually don't know anything about them. Yeah. And do you so, want to like, share one of do you want to share one of the gross things or one of the unpleasant things? I mean, we well, know? sure. Like, like, like. Okay. So my 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 young son, he's four years old. He is obsessed with pirates, as many children <laughs> are. And of course, it could be because he's been living with a, a mother who's been obsessed with pirates for a couple of years, <laughs> and we've been reading Treasure Island at bedtime and Aww. all that stuff. We just totally pirate costumes all over the house. So recently, for his birthday, I got him a little like toy pirate ship, and we were taking out the toy pirate ship and putting it together. And the toy pirate ship says Blackbeard on the side. Okay. So, and you can get like a little Blackbeard guy who goes with it and, and yada, yada. And okay. On the one hand, Blackbeard is looms large in pirate lore because of how, what he looked like. He had this like crazy long beard reportedly mm-hmm. he put candles in his hat. He was like terrifying. But you know what Blackbeard was? He was a rapist, mm. like legit. Like some of the primary sources about him are about how he terrorized people in North Carolina and was known for his taste for rape. Mm. And I don't want to get into too much detail because it's, it's sure. pretty gruesome and, and kind of horrifying. But like, I'm thinking to myself, the only way that we can have Blackbeard's name on a children's toy yeah. is because we don't know anything about yeah. it. Like, like, you know, even more than, than some people, he was, uh, he was 
pretty long on the rate. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. I wouldn't think that either, but I guess it's like anything goes, right? Like it seems so plausible that he would be like that. Like it, right. and you're right. You're absolutely right. It's like all these like famous characters um, from history are so romanticized because mm-hmm. you know, that it's one thing to like know facts and dates and, but mm-hmm. it's like that, you know, the psyche or the context right. of it, like what, what does that do to a person and what kind of person mm-hmm. were they to, to like just cause so much terror and to mm-hmm. just wreak havoc and, and to not care and to just plunder and steal and yeah. all that, like, and lead a crew to do that. So yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. And that's, yeah, it's like, yeah, I didn't, don't, I didn't know that, but now I'm like, well, I'm not surprised. I don't <laughs> no, no surprise. And our flag but, but, means death. They make him a little likable. So do like... they? Well, I haven't. To be to be honest, I haven't actually watched our flag means death because usually when I'm working on a particular thing, I don't consume a lot of media about uh, that thing because I want to kind of keep the world intact inside my yeah, inside my yeah. mind. So I was kind of keeping my own world to itself. But yeah. I, I did start it. Um, it's on season two now. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, we did start it because I mean, my husband and I, we have like our, you know, our routine. We, we keep up with like the media, the shows and the entertainment and movies and all that. So we do watch mm-hmm. a lot of, um, of the running shows and stuff like that. But yeah, our flag means death. I just like heard, I wasn't initially like, you know, super eager to start it, but I just heard like really good things about it. And so we I've started heard good things it too. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's, Should I it's, watch it? Do I think I like you it? should, but I think you would, you, you wouldn't, I could see you not helping yourself and like being critical mm-hmm. a little bit, but the characters. Well, whatever um, gives you that impression, Megan, yeah. <laughs> I think I seem like a tiny bit critical or judgmental about other people's approaches to historical fiction. Who, me? No, <laughs> never. Just a little bit. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think, yeah, you would enjoy it, but I could see how you'd be like, what, what did they do here? Like, what? <laughs> But it's, you know, it's for entertainment. Um, yeah, of course. So how, so you're switching points of views and it's a dual timeline mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, adventure. It's like, like, it's like kind of fat, like both, I would say like both, both are fast paced in their own way or like appropriately paced in their own way, um, mm-hmm. but differently. So how did you, you know, how did you get into like that headspace of bouncing back and forth, switching back and forth? And, you know, I mean, you, you said that you kind of tend to do that sometimes in some mm-hmm. of your books. So, you know, I just kind of like want to explore like how, how you made that happen. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, and you know, what's funny, people, I get that question fairly frequently. And maybe it speaks to like the the central pathology of like the authorial perspective or something. But, um, but, you know, weirdly, I've never found it that disorienting to move between timelines in a story. And it could just be because because in the drafting process, like by that, by the time I get ready to sit down and write. So, so some people are, I'm sure you've encountered the terms plotters versus pantsers. Mm-hmm. So I'm friends with an, an author who lives in the same town as me and her name is Julia Glass and she's phenomenal and amazing. She won the national book award for her book three Junes, and she writes these incredible, like nuanced character perspectives with lots of like recollections. And she's just, it's just amazing. And Julie is a pantser. She sits down, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She sits down and sort of like writes her way into the story. And it's so astonishing to me that she's able to do that because I am a, I'm not able to think that way. Like the way that I work is to spend a lot of time in a time period, populate it with people who I think really belong there, see what they do. And then when I'm ready to draft, I actually do a, a, 
a spreadsheet. I do like a, a chapter map to figure out what's happening and who's doing what when. And so when plotting that out, I'll usually, that's when I'll slot in, like, if I have a, a contemporary and heavy quotes, because of course, in a true account, the contemporary timeline is 1930, which is almost 100 years ago. Mm. But, you know, I'll slot in when the true, the when, when the contemporary account is going to happen. And so as I work my way through the draft, I always know where I am and what I'm doing. And because mm. I do that, it's very common or very typical of me to have like, little callbacks from one to the other. So like sometimes they'll have like someone will have a beverage in one timeline and then they'll have it again in the present part of the timeline, or there'll be these sort of little, little, little themes that are supposed to work their way in and out between the two different timelines, which kind of braid them together in ways. Mm. Maybe because one of the things I like thinking about as a historian is ways that elements of the past kind of stalk around, around us in ways that we're sometimes aware of and sometimes not aware of. Mm. And so, um, so I've never actually found it that that strange to move between timelines, but it also could be a, a marker of my essential character flaws, you know. <laughs> I think it's just no. I think it's just like indicative of like how unsuited I am to living in the present. I don't know. <laughs> Well, no, you're just a curious person, but you're very organized. Mm-hmm. Once you started talking about spreadsheets, I'm like, oh, nope, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I know, really? But see, people find it so just like every so often I'll tell somebody that and you can see their face fall because they like wish that I'm like, I'm in a loft with like a quill. Yeah. Or, yeah. Inspiration. I'm like, no. Or like post-it notes everywhere or something like. I tried to post-it notes for one book that I had problems with and, and I ended up, that book ended up being kind of a, a massive failure. So I'm not, mm. I'm not so much of a post-it note kind of. Yeah. Kind of you, but you, unfortunately, you just found out the hard way, I guess. For me, it just it's just Excel. Yeah. It's got, it's Excel or nothing. <laughs> yeah. I know. I just, it's just easy to go to that. Like just to organize mostly like just to organize like dates and you know stuff like this with the with the reviews and the interviews and release dates mm-hmm. and all that it just helps me stay organized and also even if i'm like planning my kid's birthday party i have a spreadsheet <laughs> it's just so That's easy. impressive cuz for my kid's birthday party there was a lot of buying things quickly on amazon and then sending last minute invitations so. oh yeah i know well it's it's well now i'm like my my other uh, younger, my toddler, he's going to be three. And now I'm like in a month in about a month on the 25th, mm-hmm. like around Thanksgiving. Oh, but even now, okay. I, yeah. But even now I'm like, Oh shit, I should start planning that. now. <laughs> like, I didn't really like, it's all like this, this last three months. I feel like it's just flying by for sure. Yeah, but yeah, no, I'm right. I'm right there with you with the spreadsheets. I'm not, I'm not hating on that. I think it's a good I idea. Have, <laughs> I have two words for, for a three-year-old's birthday party. Are you ready? Foam yes. swords. Foam swords. Foam Ooh. swords. Last year, the three-year-old birthday party was knife-themed foam swords. Craziness. That's adorable. Everywhere. Yes. That's so funny. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'll have to figure it out because I'm wondering about like what we're going to do and I'm wondering about themes and stuff like that. That would be really cute. Mm-hmm. And that would totally like just keep them busy for like ever. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> but Were it means allowed? in my house there's there's foam swords got like still all over my i think they're three in my car right now that's so funny well hey it's like in an emergency if you need some entertainment for the little ones you know just yeah. like here i got some foam yeah. swords in my car yeah totally <laughs> jousting anyone we're a completely that's so funny that's awesome. That's hilarious. Um, so this is a, a two-parter. What were the most challenging parts to write and then the most enjoyable parts to write? That's funny. Challenging and enjoyable. 
you know what's so strange? And this is another, maybe more of a process question, so it's maybe less what you are aiming for. But there's some days where you sit down to work and it's just awful. It's just mm-hmm. like pulling teeth. It's like the way that I often work when I have to force myself to, to produce is I will set a word count goal for the day, whether mm-hmm. it's like 1,500 words or 2,000 words or whatever it is. And there's some days where getting to like, especially before I had my son, I have sat at my desk for 12 hours to produce my word count before. It's happened. It's happened. Um, Not for a while, but it has happened. And then there's some days where you sit down and it's just like you're just cranking and it's just coming and it's great and you're crushing it. And then you like hate your word count and then you just keep going and you feel like so boss and it's awesome. And you know, the strangest part of that is that you would expect that the like really easy flowing days would produce better work, Mm. but they don't, or at least in my experience, they don't. Like when I go back to revise, so at least for me, there's, there's like a period of drafting where I'm just getting through the first draft and then you get to the first draft and it's terrible. You have to start at the beginning and you have to go back through it again and really fix it up. And pretty much every time when I go back and I'm rewriting and I'm revising, I can't tell what has been produced on a tough day and what's been produced on an easy day. And it's really strange to me. And maybe it speaks to some degree that we all still kind of subscribe to this like Byronic fantasy of the like literary genius, maybe. <laughs> um, like despite the fact that lived experience does not bear that out at all. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's, it's it's funny to me that I've been doing this job for like 15 years now and I still am surprised that I can't tell what what was written in a you know frenzy of inspiration and what was written in in like the most like workmanlike like chiseling you know kind of slog um so all which is to say that it's it's not quite clear to me which parts of this book were the most fun to write and which parts were the hardest to write like I enjoyed coming up with some of the, like a true account has a few different plot twists here and there, which mm-hmm. I don't particularly want to give, give away. Yeah. But I really enjoyed trying to think through some of the plot twists, like where is this adventure going to go? You know, where should the story take us in terms of destinations? And you know, what should the answer be that we mm-hmm. arrive at? And I enjoyed trying to think those things through. Um, that was pretty satisfying. Um, but perhaps, you know, maybe in all, in all candor, the most hardest part was that this was, this was not the first pirate novel that I wrote. Oof. I actually wrote a failed pirate novel that has never seen the light of day, nor should oh, okay. it, to be fair. Um, <laughs> but so if you look back on like my, my publishing schedule, I had my, my ghost novel, The Appearance of Annie Van Syndrome came out in, I want to say 2015. And then I had a follow-up to Physic Book of Delivered Stain, which came out, which was called The Daughters of Temperance Hobbs, which came out in 2019. And there's a missing book there in that span of time. And the missing book is this untitled pirate novel that I tried to wrestle with. It was set in a totally different time, a totally different place. Um, and it was trying to do too many things. It's too mm. big. It's too sprawling. And I tried every which way that I could to try to make it work. And it just it just doesn't work. Like There are elements of it that I still love and still sometimes think about. The characters I still think about. Um, but so definitely I would say the hardest part of writing a true account was writing the first pirate novel, which in a way, you know, a true account is actually kind of a pared down. It's a pretty spare story. And for me, it's actually a little bit on the short side. Mm. Um, you know, I have a couple of novels that are like 400 pages long and this yeah, one I think sure. is like 280 or whatever it is. 
Um, so from my perspective, it feels lean, you know, it feels like a lean, spare yeah, kind of story. But you know, you don't want to, you don't want to put more in there just for the sake of putting more. Of course in not. There. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me to think about how much I had to write and leave aside before mm. I gave myself permission to, to whittle it down and to write the story that became a true account. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, you know what, because <laughs> your love for pirates, like you just couldn't leave it alone, but I'm glad you found a way to like, my poor to, agent, know, ra- she kept being like, why are you still talking about pirates? <laughs> You're like, why don't, it's like, they're, cause they're amazing. They're awesome. What do you mean? <laughs> so fascinating. Um, so just a few more questions while we wrap mm-hmm. up here. So what, what advice would you give to Hannah? What advice would you give to Marion? Oh, that's tough. What advice would I give them? I don't know if I can answer this question. I mean, it, it, which is, which is, I, I don't mean to be a cop out, <laughs> but like, like Hannah and Marion, and this is going to sound insane since I am the person who wrote both of them <laughs> and essentially invented both of them. But I also kind of feel like I don't have anything to say to them, which is strange. And maybe that's because because they're they're living in such wildly different times from my own you know i feel like i feel like the life of a 21st century you know middle-aged novel writer Mm -hmm. would be so incomprehensible to a 17-ish we don't know how old she is year old you know working a girl who's been separated from her family who's living in the 18th century who's living in this like post this post uh, Puritan moment where she's had to constantly revise her own moral center in order to survive. You know, part of what we learn about Hannah is that she, she makes these kinds of moral bargains with herself, but she does it as a way of, of seizing power where she is otherwise totally powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marion in a similar way, you know, Marion maybe superficially has, you know, her life and my life are, are more, closely aligned, you know, from a class perspective, from an educational perspective, Mm. even from the part of the world that we live in, although Hannah lives in my part of the world also. (laughs) Um, But like, but even Marion, you know, Marion, Marion has, is struggling with how to, how to live within her sexuality at a time when her sexuality is criminalized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so she's, she's trying to, like, I don't feel like it's really my place to give Marion any advice. Like she's, she's come up to be, she's, like Marion is has made a successful life for herself in a in a time period when many aspects of her selfhood have been criminalized. And so, you know, I think that even though on many superficial axes she and I would have maybe more to say to each other than either of us would have to say to Hannah, at the same time, I feel like, you know, she's living almost a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And she's living with a completely set different set of, you know, gendered expectations, class expectations. Um you know, constrictions around her sexuality and her gender presentation and things like that, that are yeah. like the life that I, that we're living in, in the 21st century would be in some ways unrecognizable to her. As right. Well. So yeah, like, like she wouldn't even have of, to worry about half of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like Marion's living in a time when it's actually like scandalous for a woman to wear slacks, like mm-hmm. for real. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, wearing corduroy pants right now like now i think it's kind of funny that we all dress like toddlers we all wear like yeah. stretchy <laughs> pants and t-shirts um 
that's a separate a separate issue. Um, so it, it like speaking in terms of of advice, you know, I think it's it's hard to think for me to think in terms of advice for Hannah or for Marion. That's okay because I also ad- you know. I also admire both of them, which yeah. is which is also kind of silly for someone who technically invented them both. <laughs> but you know, they're both they're both courageous and daring in ways that I admire. And in historical fiction, I tend to be very interested in stories about regular people in extraordinary circumstances. I'm not, I'm not an author that you want to read if you want to read about like fancy kings and queens, because mm. I don't care. I really don't care about them. <laughs> I'm really interested in the kinds of people who don't typically leave much record of themselves in the archive, because I feel like those stories are the ones that can be so beautifully explored and explicated in historical fiction that really takes the research seriously. Yeah. And that's what I try to do in my work. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's just, that's a lot of what great storytelling is, is to put ordinary people in an extraordinary situation. It's just yeah. like, yeah. Cause you know, you don't, you know, it's like giving Superman a gun, right? Like, I know this is a weird, really weird like example, yeah. but it's like, he wouldn't, and that wouldn't be interesting. It's just like, yeah. no, you know, and, and we're putting, so, you know, putting him in a situation like where he's got to defeat bad guys, but you put him in a situation where, you know, he's got to like maybe use some of his psychological skills or something, you know, things, people yeah. skills, things that he's not, he doesn't really have to be leaned on, you know, leaned on for. It's that, that those kind of things where you bring characters out of their comfort zone or put, throw them yeah. in a situation where they're like, what, like, what do I do? What, how is mm-hmm. this going to go? But yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, your characters is like, yeah, you, you came up with them, but sometimes they like to just take a life of their own. Right. So it's, <laughs> it's not surprising at all that you'd be like, well, do I have any right to give them advice? <laughs> like, I want them to give me advice. Like, right? yeah, seriously. <laughs> right. And he's um, definitely a better sailor than I am at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, well, you know, how much more experience, do you need to like get up there? <laughs> you never know. Um, what's next for you? Are you working on anything that you could talk about? Uh, I'm starting to think through, you know, a few ideas of what what I think my next novel is going to be. I mean, right now I'm focused on a true account, which is coming out. We're talking at the end of October, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's coming out pretty soon. And then, of course, um, the Penguin Book of Pirates is coming out in February. So I'm doing a lot of things to support both of those books, and I've started reading kind of deeply into an idea for a novel that I think is going to be bigger and juicier um, and set in a different time and place, but I'm not, I'm not quite ready to talk about it just yeah. yet. Cause I'm still, I'm in the stage of where I'm reading stuff and packing it all into my brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the, I will say that one of the things that I've been reading is the bonfire of the vanities, which is a Tom Wolfe novel. It's kind of like like a Tom Wolfe novel from about about 1980s New York, and I'm not I'm not going to be writing about 1980s New York, but it is this like giant, juicy social satire novel about um, about this city in this moment in this time and place, and that's something that I'm reading to kind of see to pack into my brain. That's cool. I bet you can. Yeah discover a lot with that i could imagine you maybe could go down a bunch of rabbit holes too with like just for sure (laughs) sure. get get sucked in um okay Catherine, how where can we find you online on social media oh you can find me i have my website which is katherinehow.com i'm on instagram as at katherine b how where there's lots of pictures of books and sailing and some of my my charming son um (laughs) i'm on twitter i guess is it 
still Twitter. I'm on X. I can't, yeah. I can't call it that. <laughs> Whatever. I'm on that platform <laughs> as at Catherine B. Howe. Uh, I am nominally on threads as at Catherine B. Howe as well, though I'm not fully there yet, but you can also find me there. And I'm on Facebook um, as Catherine Howe. And I share, you know, event event details and, and b- random bits of fun historical intrigue uh, on Facebook. And in truth, if you want to spy on me while I research, I actually use Pinterest to keep track of um, ideas for different books. And so you can find me on Pinterest. That's so um, funny. It's, I don't know how revealing it is, but it is a tool that I use. And so sometimes I tell people that they can spy on me while I do my research. Right. If I want to. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. yeah. That's just like, <laughs> like vision board, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and of course, and of course I'm also on, um, I'm on Goodreads and you can connect with me yeah. on Goodreads as well. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So a true account, Hannah Messery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates written by herself (laughs) that comes out on November 21st. Um, Catherine, thank you so much. This was super fun. Thanks for having me, Megan. And also, can I just say that I'm going to have some events for a true account. I'm going to be in kind of around the Boston area. I'm going to be in Cambridge. I'm going to be in Marblehead. I'm coming to a book festival in Cincinnati. I'm going to be in San Diego. I'm going nice. to be in South Carolina and I'll be signing some books that you can, if you want a signed copy, you can order it from the mysterious bookshop in, um, in New York. Oh, and I'll have an event in Houston, which is my hometown. So oh, uh, if anyone wants to catch up with me, check me out on com slash events. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, we can include all the, like the link at least to your website and to the events page. So people could check it out, okay. see where they are, see where you are stalk yeah. you in more ways than one <laughs> stalk your, your appearances and your vision board all that good stuff <laughs> uh, well thank you so much and yeah you know keep a touch if you ever want to come back you'll be welcome oh thank you so much megan well if you need if you want to talk pirates some more i'll happily send you a penguin book of pirates <laughs> <laughs> there we go absolutely and there you go. That was Catherine Howe talking about a true account. That book should be available now by the time this episode releases. Um, go ahead and check out the show notes for links on where you can find her online and on social media and where you can buy the book. Great review, subscribe, please, please, please. Um, this is still a new endeavor for me, you know, technically, and I'm loving the opportunity to grow my audience. And I can't do that without you guys, the listeners and readers um, in the community. So please go ahead and find me on your favorite podcast player. Uh, keep up and subscribe with the website where you're going to find book reviews on cantinabookclub.com. Follow Cantina Book Club on social media, all that good stuff. Uh, if you are finding that any books that you do like, go ahead and hop on over to Goodreads on Amazon and give them the authors a rating review. It really does help them out and pre-orders. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening.